I was not practicing needs-based leadership. That's flat out what it is. I thought that I knew what my team would need. I didn't ask them. I just assumed. This is what it took for a well-meaning, highly driven solo practice owner to finally, finally get the workplace culture she wanted. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and the inspiring doctor I talk to is Dr. Lindsay Ruland, who created Emergency Veterinary Hospital of Ann Arbor, Michigan as a startup. She had a vision for how she was going to make a healthier, happier hospital. She mandated time off. She kept shifts reasonable. She wanted everyone to be happy, and that sounds great. So why did it lead to her own exhaustion and terrible consequences? First, let's find out what led Lindsay on this unique business-owning path. Okay, just to give people background, could you just say a little bit where your hospital is, what medicine you practice? Yeah. So I own the Emergency Veterinary Hospital, and we are located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we are a 24-hour emergency and critical care facility. Did you buy a practice or a client list, or did you start out from nothing? Uh, I started from scratch. (laughs) Was there even an emergency facility? Was there one in the area? Yeah, yeah. So there was actually... For a really long time, there was a emergency clinic here that I believe was started by several of the general practices in the area. And a lot of the owners, you know, several years ago got together and said, hey, we don't like being on call. So why don't we share a facility together and we can kind of share shifts there? Yes. And so it was this big collaboration. And that's actually where my passion for emergency medicine developed. I worked there back in the day when I was, you know, an undergrad. (laughs) (laughs) So that practice was here, but they were up for sale. And so I debated about purchasing that one, but just based on the location in the building, I wanted something different. So there was that one. And there also is a 24 hour general practice here that has emergency and they also do general like daytime practice as well. Okay. Are you far enough away from each other that oftentimes people wouldn't debate about which one they're going to go to? Or is it, I mean, how do you get your referrals and does it seem like there's a lot of crossover or not? So what I tell people is this is, seems like maybe an oddity in veterinary medicine because veterinary medicine is very competitive. I think um, we're all kind of taught that in vet school, that if you're going to be a practice owner, like basically how to compete. (laughs) Right. But I really don't think it has to be that way. So we had the kind of this novel idea that I don't need to compete with the practice, you know, down the road. So the 24-hour general practice is a few miles from us. And we have a very good working relationship with them. And we don't really have to compete with them. You know, they have their niche that they serve. We have a different niche that we serve. And then that emergency practice that I spoke about earlier, it was actually purchased by Blue Pearl. And so we have them on the other side of town. And all of us, we all serve different niches. And so I think that's really important for our facility at least, is we have the mindset that we we don't need to compete with these practices. We're all in this together. And since we serve different niches, we're going to serve different clients. And we're all very much needed in the area. You know, we're, we're very big on camaraderie in the veterinary field. 
I feel like there is sometimes a default by uh, general practices. I know this used to be a general practice kind of w- wanted to do it all. First of all, there'd be no specialist anywhere nearby. So the general practice would pick up, I mean, they wouldn't be specialists, but they would do a wider variety of medicine than maybe some GPs do today. And then they would do their emergency because there was no emergency hospital. Their business model was whoever comes in the door is who we take care of. If it's not too like transparent, would you give your vision of what kind of the different niche that emergency veterinary hospital serves versus that other one versus the blue pearl, how you feel that it is a different niche? How do you do things differently? How do they do things differently from your vantage point? Yeah. So essentially we're a walk-in clinic, right? We're emergency. Even though people can schedule ahead of time online to say they're coming in, it's not really an appointment time. (laughs) Okay. Right. Because, you know, sometimes people sign up for an ear infection at 2 p.m., And then we get a hit by car that comes in the door right beforehand. So it's delayed. So we are a walk-in clinic. Um, We do see anything that comes in throughout this entire pandemic. We don't turn patients away. I know that emergency medicine is really strained right now. Yeah. And so through this pandemic, we have not turned patients away. We will see pretty much anything. We do tell people I'm not board certified. No one in our facility is board certified right now. But there are a lot of things that we can do without being board certified. And when we reach the point, the end of our abilities as emergency veterinarians to treat a patient, and we're very happy to refer them to a specialty center, you know, at that point. So the, so I think like Blue Pearl serves kind of the specialty care and we're happy to refer to them for the specialty services as they can take patients in. Uh, It seems like frequently there's a lot of places lately that can't, they're at capacity, they can't take patients. Right. The 24-hour day practice down the road from us, you know, the niche that they serve is really, they have their own clientele for general services that they have this ability then since they are there 24 hours a day to help those people who may not be able to fit into a normal nine to five kind of schedule. And so they serve that niche and they, they do see emergency cases as well. The difference is that because at Emergency Veterinary Hospital, we don't do vaccines, Quite honestly, if you were to ask me what flea products are out there, I wouldn't have the first clue aside from Revolution <laughs> right. and maybe Frontline. Somebody asked me how to treat ringworm the other day, and I really had to look it up. I mean, <laughs> we're very we're very much not the day practice, and we're very insistent upon that. And so I think that's been the lure of general practices referring to a only ER-type clinic is that we're going to send the patient back to them. The niche that we serve, I think that's a little bit different in our area, is that we do function as a quasi-referral center, even though we're not board certified. So just like you were saying that, you know, some practices where there's no ER near them and there's no specialty, they really have to pick up those services. We've really had to do that in our area because there's been a void of specialty care in our area, at least consistently. So you know, we've really had to pick up quite a bit of that. So I think our level of emergency care is, and the cases that we see and the involvement we have long-term with these patients, is a little bit different than a typical ER. We will recheck them. We will follow through on them. And then we will safely hand them off to their primary. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because I think when you first said niche, I thought, oh, she's thinking about customer. And then it kind of turned out, no, there's kind of a different flavor of medicine and how they do things. Do the same customers go to all three? For instance, are there people you mentioned that you do try to take and you try to help cases along maybe further than others because you lack 
consistent specialists ready to take those cases. Is there a money issue for some of those cases where they come into you and they do follow up with you because you say, well, there is a specialist you could go to. They say, oh, it's going to be more expensive. I don't know. Is it our fees ever an issue with that niche? You know, we always joke in Ann Arbor that people act like there's an orb around Ann Arbor that they can't leave. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is kind of the running thing that we talk about is that, you know, every time we'll say to somebody, you know, you'll have to travel about 45 minutes to an hour to get to the closest specialty center that consistently has specialists. They kind of look at you sideways, like, I'm not traveling that far. So I think some of it is maybe a location and convenience factor. Yeah. Sometimes it's financial. Although I, I would say for the most part, I'm surprised by the people who will say, you know, we can't afford that. We can't do that. And it's really, it's a fear factor. You know, they're afraid they won't be able to. They're afraid that a specialist is going to be so much money. But when you actually talk to them and you say, hey, look, this is what their consultation fee is. And I really strongly believe that you need to go speak with someone in your pet needs to see somebody who sees this day in and day out, you know, I could certainly look stuff up and and all this, but I really think your pet needs to see somebody who does this day in and day out. And if the consultation fee is only this much, then you can decide when you get there, if you're going to pursue the more expensive treatment or not. And there won't be any judgment either way. And I think once you take that fear factor away from them, we've had a lot of clients that have said, okay, yeah, maybe we'll go try it then. I'm really surprised how many of them actually then continue to pursue that more advanced care. And then inevitably we do see them back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because that other place is 45 minutes away. That's way too far. (laughs) We do see them back. Oftentimes what happens, and we're happy to do this because we do, we, we do serve kind of a, a unique niche in our area is that we'll send them off. We'll take care of them. We'll diagnose them. We'll get them as far as we can with treatment or a diagnosis, narrow it down as much as we can. And then if we think they need to go to a specialist, we'll send them to a specialist. If they get a diagnosis there and start some treatment, but they need maybe some continued hospitalization, oftentimes the clients will say, you know what, we had a really good experience at your place and you're closer to us. Can we please bring him back and be hospitalized at your place for the few days that he needs this care? And we'll work really closely with the specialists and we'll bring those pets back and we'll yeah. we'll hospitalize them at our place. And so it is this really nice, you know, we don't have to be competitive with other people around us because we do all serve different purposes and niches here. And I think that lends to this nicer environment where it's not so harsh. (laughs) It's not so harsh, right? So you mentioned that you worked at that other emergency facility. So when you were in college getting, you know, a science degree prior to trying to get into veterinary school? Yeah. And I was just going to say, maybe asking either then, what did you see before, during, or after veterinary school that kind of gave you this collegial, not competition thing gets pushed a lot. And I'm wondering where that came from. And also if you have other ideas about your hospital and the way it's led and managed that are different than ones maybe you saw modeled or talked about. So I know that's a big question. Maybe we could just start with what you saw when you were working at that emergency hospital in undergrad. Well, it might be kind of like a two-part answer. So basically the first part is that I grew up in Ann Arbor. I'm from this area. And I went to college at Eastern Michigan University here locally. Um, It was so great to go to a small college and get that one-on-one interaction with my professors, which was really great in growing me as a future veterinarian. But also it allowed me to be, you know, in this community and see what the veterinary community was like in this area. 
So working in that emergency clinic, one of the first things that I noticed is, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think the first thing you realize when you work in an emergency clinic is, wow, these people are really rock stars, (laughs) badasses, (laughs) you know? I remember thinking that right off the bat, like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be as good as these people. (laughs) Is it what they knew? Could you describe something? I mean, was it the speed at which they work, the things they knew, their physical ability to do procedures? What really like wowed you and thought these people are amazing? It was all of the above. What I found very interesting was that here were these people, not only from all these different clinics, there were practice owners from day practices in the area, which should be competitive with each other, but here they were working side by side. So they're working side by side with each other, laughing, joking, and very quickly, very confidently assessing and treating very critical patients. It was like the most well-oiled machine I would just stand back and watch them in awe until they would <laughs> shoo me away and tell me to go answer the phone that's ringing that I, that I was ignoring. And I would just stand there in awe at how, you know, they were calling out orders. And and not only this, this is really what I think instilled in me some leadership tendencies, which I'll, I'll describe in a moment, but, but watching not only the doctors calling out orders and seeming confident, but the technicians, the technicians were sitting there, you know, very quickly putting an IV catheter in a critical patient where you can't even see the vein, you know, these little tiny critical creatures that were coming in, these technicians would slam an IV catheter in, they would, you know, start bolusing fluids. They would, they knew their stuff. So what it was not only the doctors that were absolutely amazing and so knowledgeable and compassionate for every animal that came in there, it was the technicians too. These technicians were amazing. And so that was one of the first things that I noticed that really set the stage for me about what kind of veterinarian I wanted to be was not just a veterinarian who knew their stuff and was confident in their abilities and so forth and really compassionate towards every animal that came in, no matter their background or, you know, we would get strays that would come in and, you know, I'll never forget this Dalmatian that had a fractured femur. Here I am just as like junior in college. This Dalmatian comes in. No one knows who the owner is. They can't find the owner. And he's got this horribly fractured leg. Every single person in that room was rushing to get an IV catheter in, quickly assess that patient, get him pain medications, and then, you know, do everything they would do as if he was owned. Yeah. So that really kind of set the stage for what kind of veterinarian I wanted to be when I got older. That was really amazing. So then, um, I mean, I guess I can give you a little bit of my background, which I know we've talked about before, is that you know, I went to vet school and... I kept coming back to emergency medicine. I kept thinking I would do something else, like I was going to do lab animal medicine. (laughs) And I come from a research background that really seemed, oh, yeah, this seems logical. I should go to, you know, lab animal medicine. But emergency medicine is truly my passion. It's really where I live. It's really, you know, I tell people I want to live an authentic lifestyle. And in order to be authentic, I had to practice emergency medicine because it was just my niche. And so... After vet school, I, I graduated. And at that time, you know, this was 12 years ago now, there weren't many places hiring new graduates in emergency medicine. They wanted you to go do an internship, possibly a residency, right? Yeah. And I was really thankful that I was hired by an emergency practice who I was their first new grad to hire. I think they were a little bit nervous about it. <laughs> I was going to ask if they had just some magical philosophy that they thought it was important to take new grads, but no, you're saying normally they would have taken the interns and residents too, but you know, (laughs) took a shot. I know. I think they, they typically 
to my knowledge at least, we're hiring veterinarians that have been in the field for a little while. Okay. And so the concept of a new graduate, I think, was a little bit intimidating. They weren't really sure what to do, but I, w- I was pretty persistent. <laughs> I'll say I was pretty, you know, contacting them like, hey, I really, I want to work in emergency mess and I just want somebody to give me a chance. And so um, I worked there and it was a great experience. I learned so much as a um, high volume fast-paced ER that practiced top-notch medicine. And this was absolutely, I mean, this this felt perfect for what I wanted to do. Yeah. But after a little while, and hopefully this still answers your question, but after a little while, I started to notice that maybe the veterinary field was not full of that camaraderie that I had witnessed at the emergency clinic before going to vet school. And I started to notice that maybe the doctors and technicians weren't as valued as I had thought they once were way back in the day. And that really affected me. You know, I I personally witnessed as one of my technicians had lost a child halfway through her pregnancy and she almost died. Her son died and, and she almost died along with him. And the message that was sent to her from my boss at the time was, when are you coming back? Now, I wasn't privy to that conversation. It was took place in a hospital, so I, I don't know what actual words were said, but that was the message that was sent to that technician was, when are you coming back? And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I, I didn't think that veterinary medicine would be the type of place where it's like this work till you die mentality. Like that doesn't seem appropriate, but I loved what I was doing. Absolutely loved what I was doing. That's interesting. So I, yeah, I don't want to, I, I understand the sensitivity to- uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In that situation, were there people who were kind of the soft skill, touchy feely people and the people who weren't? And was the issue that maybe the message was sent by a different person and someone else would have done differently? Or the culture there was just a little like, look, it's the work and that's what we're here for. I'm not really sure. I'll say my my view on it has maybe changed over time, especially as a practice owner now and how I have a better understanding about words that we say may be skewed or each person has their own individual filter and may interpret them differently, even though we don't mean them that way. Somebody didn't lead with the condolence in the conversation. Maybe they meant to, or maybe, right. yes, the other right. person, yeah. Right. And so, but I think just over time, I started to realize like that, you know, that I, we had that experience. I had a couple of other experiences I had heard of. Um, I started to recognize that it might not have just been the culture at that clinic. I think it was kind of this culture in veterinary medicine of this work till you die mentality. And the breaking point for me and where I, again, this all formed who I was as a leader and helped me form our culture at Emergency Veterinary Hospital is I worked about 60 hours over three days, over the course of three days. And I was 16 weeks pregnant and I was in labor at the end of the 60 hours. (laughs) And, you know, we went to the hospital. I didn't think much about it. I just thought, well, you know, and, and they said, you're in labor. And we were pretty certain we were going to lose our baby. And I got a similar vibe that that technician had gotten, that it was an inconvenience that I was going through that. And I wasn't the first person that experienced that. I don't think it was just a clinic thing. I I think it was a, a veterinary medicine culture thing, right? The profession in general, when someone is going through something tough in their life, our first thing is to maybe not give them condolences or support them. It was this culture of, you know, this is a distraction and this is inconvenient for us. So eventually I ended up leaving the practice I was at because, um, you know, even though 
thank goodness we were able to save our, our son and he's a healthy, very healthy, rambunctious nine-year-old now. It changed who I was as a veterinarian and my concept in our field in general and how I really wanted to make sure that we could change that mindset of this work till you die mentality. This concept of you have to give up your whole life just to be a veterinarian, right? At the first emergency hospital you worked at, did it feel like the employees and the doctors, the technicians, the receptionists all saw themselves as people or they just seemed happier? And then you were kind of confronted with this personal issue with this new place. Or did you see examples of how people were less focused on that at the previous place? You know, I would say that, tell me if this answers your question or not. At the original clinic, that uh, emergency clinic back in college, what I noticed is that as different team members went through something in their personal lives, or maybe there was a really difficult case that really they took hard and they were really struggling with, the whole team rallied around them. The whole team. And I'm sure there were little squabbles and little drama in the background in places, but overall the culture there was to watch these people rally around each other and support each other. And that wasn't the vibe that I got when I, by the time I graduated from vet school, it seemed like veterinary medicine had had a shift to a a little bit different culture. Now, maybe it was that clinic that I was at. It seems from speaking with some of my classmates that it was a a profession-wide issue, not just a specific clinic issue. I just had that experience there at that clinic. And I knew I wanted to, I wanted to get back to the clinic that I had known back in college that inspired me and sparked that passion in me. And I wanted to get back to that type of an environment. And so that's why I ended up starting. I think it was, I was probably a little naive at the time, but I was, when, when I started EVH, <laughs> I'm glad I did it at the time I did, but I was 28 years old. I had a two-year-old and a six-month-old and, you know, no clientele, just a demographic study that said that it would work. <laughs> Did you have a husband who was independently wealthy working for Tesla no. or anything? No, okay. <laughs> no, no. Nope, nope, nope. So, I mean, we really invested everything in this with with the concept of I wanted to have a clinic that not only practiced this this amazing medicine, high standards of care that I had learned at the practice where I, when I first um, graduated, I wanted to practice that style of medicine, but I wanted to make sure we could have a culture in our clinic where everybody felt valued no matter their level or their position. Yeah. And because we all serve a purpose, just like every clinic in an area serves a purpose and a niche, every person inside a clinic has a niche and they serve a purpose and they're very, very valuable. So I wanted to make sure that we could set up a culture with that mindset. Yeah. I just got interested right there. When you started it, you had that vision that you wanted that culture. And I would love to hear kind of how, you started it and how it evolved as you took on more hires and different hires and that what that arc yeah. looks like. So I, at the age of 28, thought I was going to be this great leader. <laughs> okay. Full of ambition. <laughs> you know? I love it. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I was really excited. I really had this passion for emergency medicine, but also just this passion to show people in veterinary medicine that, that it is a good field to work in. And I wanted to grow these people professionally and personally. And I, I wanted to really, you know, for those clients that were really hesitant about veterinarians, you know, those people who, oh, you're money grubbers. I really wanted to grab those people and bring them back and show them they could trust this field again. I mean, I had all these amazing visions in my head 
And then it totally <laughs> the worked, right? Right at your first year. Right, right, sure. Happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then you just encounter different things. You know, our contractor ran with our clinic being halfway built. So we had to, to quickly, you know, watch a bunch of YouTube videos and learn a lot of construction things. And, and so just, you know, one thing after another, one setback after another. Um, but we finally opened up and I started to realize over time that I wasn't being the leader that I had envisioned I would be, right? Here I was thinking, I'm going to insist on work-life balance for my team because by having them work fewer hours in a week, they're going to be happier. It's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. And that wasn't the case at all, at all. I had it so wrong. So, 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 so wrong. Okay. Tell me how you had it wrong. And did you learn it in one year or did it take many? How how long did it take? (laughs) It took many years. So I would say, and it didn't matter how many leadership conferences I went to or courses I took or books I read or podcasts I listened to, you know, I I really thought that I was going about things the right way, but I'll tell you what I was wrong about. Okay. I was not practicing needs-based leadership. That's flat out what it is. I thought that I knew what my team would need. I didn't ask them. I just assumed that they would want to work fewer hours in a week. And I made all these assumptions about the things that they would want and the things that they would need because, you know, it's, oh, I read it in this article and this is what they're saying everybody wants and all this stuff. And really what it is, is that over time, I started to realize that every person is at a different season of their life. Every person has different needs and their different needs might shift over time too, as they reach different seasons of their life. So I would say I got about maybe five, five, six years into owning this clinic. I was frustrated. We were growing, business-wise growing exponentially every year. I mean, it was like this train that was just going down this track that there was no stopping it. (laughs) And it was, you know, such a blessing to be just growing and having such a positive impact on our community and seeing these patients, you know, leave our hospital that came in so sick and but there was still something missing and I was still really frustrated as a leader that I wasn't impacting my team the way I wanted to. So it all came to a head about three and a half years ago. And gradually over time, over the first six years, I had taken on extra things that I thought were burdening my team. Okay. Let's say if a doctor wanted to go on vacation and I didn't have anybody to fill the shifts, I would jump in and fill them even if I already was working full time. Okay. Right. Because I really wanted them to have this work-life balance. And over time, what I realized, and it didn't even dawn on me, first of all, I had slipped back into that mindset of this work-till-you-die mentality. I wasn't a good mom for my other kids. I wasn't there for my friends. I had lost sight of who I was, even. And I was growing resentful of my team. And even though I wasn't showing it outwardly as far as I knew, I think I had this aura that I was resentful of them because here I am picking up all these shifts for you and I'm doing all this stuff for you and you're still unhappy. And um, it all came to a head when I was working six overnights a week at nine months pregnant and we lost our daughter a week before our C-section. And it's the worst experience any parent should ever go through. And everything stops at that moment. Right. Everything completely stopped. I took a step away from the clinic. 
And quite honestly, I mean, I hate to admit this publicly, but at that moment, I really didn't even care what happened with the clinic. It was like, you know, my, I think I told you before I was in the clinic when my daughter died, I was there doing surgery. So that added a whole nother level of, I don't even want to step foot in this building again. And I had a doctor and a technician who made the comment to my team that it was karma and I deserved for my daughter to die. How did you find out that person had said that? My manager at the time contacted me. So this was about 36 hours after our daughter had passed away and we delivered her. And we were in the hospital still. And my manager contacted me and she said, I don't want to bother you, but I wanted to let you know that this had happened. And I I just need your permission to go ahead and accept their resignation right now because we can't have this here. I said, yes, absolutely. You know, so that was, that was how I found out. My first thought in that moment was, I can't believe somebody could ever say that about another human being. And also maybe my next thought after that was, I worked so many shifts for you. (laughs) I did so much to make sure that you had, you know, a good work-life balance and I sacrificed my own for it. And now, you know, for somebody to say that about me. So everything just stopped. Everything just, I stepped away from the clinic for about four weeks and it was really hard to step foot back in there. And ironically, the reason I had to step foot back in there was because the washer broke. (laughs) Why did you have to come in because the washer broke? uh, They couldn't get a hold of my manager at the time. And we all know laundry is very crucial to a vet clinic. So I came back in the washer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember what were the feelings that were keeping you away? I mean, that's traumatic, right? I I was at that treatment island doing surgery. I knew the moment she died. I I didn't know she had died. I I just, I knew something horrible had happened. And so it was really triggering to be back there and to walk past that treatment island and to be in that facility. And, And honestly, I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of anger at that time and resentment towards my team. Yeah. Because I had sacrificed so much. And then, you know, I know it played a role in my daughter dying. I obviously I had a medical condition too that that did it, but I know it had to have played a role. And so it was really triggering to walk back in there, a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, but I wanted to put on a bold face and walk back in there and be the leader, right? You're the leader. You can't show your weakness. See, I find it's interesting. <laughs> you you spent that time to make a different culture there. And then when you were going back with that washer, you were thinking about maybe that old lesson, which was, I got to put on a brave face and go in and help them with this and act like it's not bothering me. Right. And you know what? I realized um, a very hard lesson that day is that I really, I can't hide things. I really suck at hiding So you realized when you got there that this, your brave face was not cutting it. The brave face was not cutting it. I walked in and actually my husband came in with me because he was, you know, helping out more so at the clinic at that time. And we both walked in. And I think when we, when I walked past that Island, you just, the emotions just hit, you know, and I remember walking back to the laundry room and tears just streaming down my face. And someone came up and gave me a hug. And honestly, I don't even remember who it was to this day. I don't remember who it was. I just know someone came up and gave me a hug. And I was like, okay, even though I'm angry and I'm resentful right now, like there's little tidbits of my team, my dream team here, right? I I just got to find them. So, you know, the most traumatic experience of my entire life. But I I will tell you that it really, at that moment, I could have given up at that moment. I could have sold the clinic. 
I could have, I think a lot of people would have walked away. It was very triggering to be there for, yes. I mean, even still I have moments where it's triggering to be there, but I will tell you that in that moment, I had a decision. I had two paths I could go down. I could give up. I could sell my clinic and I could continue to be resentful and angry and not be feeling kind of that purpose need in my life. Or I could go down the path of saying, all right, this was awful and I will never, ever, ever forget her, but I'm going to use her memory to change this in a positive way. I'm going to use this experience to get my team back onto the right path to the the team that I intended to create from the beginning. And it started at the top. I had to change my mindset, right? I could not insist on this work-life balance for everybody else and sit and take on all these extra burdens and then be a resentful person. That didn't serve anybody. So it started with me. I had to get things in order in my life. I had to set boundaries in my own life. I had to start to get that work-life balance back in my own life. We went through our entire team. We said what our standards were. We said what our goal was, our new mission was. We were getting back to our, our mission of having a positive impact on our clients, our patients, our colleagues, and our community. We were going to get back to that. And anybody who wanted to be on board with that could be on board with it. And anybody who didn't want to was free to walk. And so we ended up weeding out about half our team, which is did scary. because Did you weed them or did they leave the farm? Both. Okay. There was a article, I believe, or a podcast or something years and years and years ago that I listened to or read. I can't remember on it, quite honestly. And someone talked about ranking employees in any profession. You should rank your, your team on a scale of one to 10. And anyone who is a seven or below, you're going to spend all of your energy trying to get them up to a 10. And so we went through and kind of went through that process, right? Anyone who was a seven or below, we had talks with them and what we would need from them to get up to our standard. And so some of those people left, some of them we weeded out. We had a pretty small team, (laughs) a small team with a clinic that was still exponentially growing. (laughs) Can I ask you, you've talked about the the work-life balance. What were the other things that you sort of built that criteria? So you kind of came in with this new vision and you told everybody here's mm-hmm. how it's going to be. And that's kind of that you you can get on the bus, you can get off the bus, but either way, you mm-hmm. got you to gotta do this. What criteria did you use? I mean, you talked about work-life balance. Were there people who kind of didn't do enough? Their skills weren't up. What were the things you had to look at across the board? Was it mostly cultural or were there also skills things you decide were holding the team back? It was multifactorial. So basically, okay. so we, we'll talk about drama in any work field, in any place of business, right? Drama sure. can really bring things down. Drama weighed heavily, <laughs> negatively okay. impacted their numbers. So if they were somebody that was always stoking the fire and kind of gossiping, I wasn't going to tolerate it. And so that really brought people's scores down. And And I told them, I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. You can leave if you're going to do that. So that played a role in it. Some people there, it was more of a concept for their skills where I knew that they had it in them. I had seen them, I'd witnessed them use these amazing technical skills that they had. But when they got into a a situation where I was picking up all of the extra weight, I guess, then I inadvertently enabled them to be a little bit lackadaisy, right? They were, 
I don't want to call them lazy, but do you know they were they were relaxing on their skills. They were not keeping their skills up because they knew I would pick up the slack. And I inadvertently enabled that. And that's why this started had to start at the top. I was no longer going to be enabling them. Instead, I was no longer going to be enabling them in their in their bad behaviors. I was going to be enabling them and encouraging them and supporting them to grow their skills professionally and to also give them some autonomy with it so that they could make certain decisions. You know, I was letting them know once you reach this skill level, I trust you enough to expand your skills even more and take on some of these responsibilities. Yeah. And once I did that, I was so amazed how these technicians just blossomed. That was going to be my follow-up. How many people that you thought were going to have this crucial conversation and these people are going to cross their arms and bow out. So that didn't happen with everybody. Yeah, it didn't happen with everybody. I, I had a few people that I thought it was going to happen with, but they ended up staying on. They're still very strong technicians for me. I had other people that I did, I wasn't even worried about. I thought they would stay and they left. So in, in the end, we really weeded out kind of the people I think that didn't maybe want those responsibilities or they didn't want, they had gotten really comfortable with their relaxed skills yeah. and, and nobody really demanding things of them or demanding higher skills. And so we ended up being left with this small team, but incredibly effective team, incredibly passionate team who, man, they were just hungry to grow their skills. They <laughs> were just sponges. They were like, yes, you know, I had two people step up and say, because part of this process was I, I had to weed out my manager, you know, That's starts at the top. Hard, yeah. <laughs> it's hard. Starts at the top though. If we were changing things It had to start at the top. And so um, I had two, two technicians who stepped up and said, we really want to grow into this role. We have no clue how to be managers. We just know that we really love the concept of this clinic. We really love the mission here. We want to do everything we can to support it. We really, really want to be a part of this. And so to this day, it's taken, you know, two and a half, three years of growing them up into this role. And they have just done phenomenal things. So I think the people that stayed behind really have just grown professionally and personally and, and blossomed into these just rock star technicians. And also really, it's like, you know, that they're compassionate already, but then when you let them spread their wings, that the amount of compassion just grows, Right. I love this because what you're describing is a thing I've spent years listening to these practice management consultants tell people to look, you got to tell exactly as you said, look, if they're below seven, you got to cut them. And if someone is gossiping, you got to right. in the nicest possible way, read in the rioter act. And then they go, you short staffed your practice, basically. I mean, you were fully staffed and you were short staffed and people's, the energy came up and people turned into a different team because they were short staffed. Cause that is the big fear. We don't have enough people as it is to do all this. I mean, now we're going to fire a bunch of people. Were you worried about that? Or you just, you had this new vision and you just flew through it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In all honesty, I was worried about it. Okay. <laughs> Cause also you're worried about work-life balance. You're like short staff seems right. like the opposite side of work-life balance. Right. 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 It was a gamble, but I knew two things. One, I'd already been at my lowest point. I'd already hit rock bottom. You know, there was like no fear at that point. It's like, man, I've already seen the worst. Yeah. I've already hit it. I already hit the bottom. Can only be up from here. Uh, can only go up from here. So there was that aspect. And there was also this other aspect of, you know what? I'm, I'm really, I didn't do it correctly the first time. <laughs> yeah. And this is my second chance. And 
by golly, we're going to do it the right way and we're going to stick to it. And whoever wants to be here with me can be here with me. And if we have to adjust our hours or do something, then we have to adjust our hours. But I wanted to make sure, first and foremost, that patients got the treatment that they needed. And right up there at that same level was really, I wanted to make sure that my team knew that they were valued and that I'm here to grow them. And I don't want them to become stagnant. I want to keep growing them and growing them and growing them and seeing them get to new heights. So it was terrifying, but it was absolutely needed. And I had one of my technicians who has been with me from day one. She likes to remain in the background, but she has been with me since day one. She actually, you know what? She trained me when I was way back as an undergrad uh, at that emergency clinic. She was a technician there, trained me as a receptionist, then came to work for me. And she was the first person to sit there and constantly tell me, it's okay. You got to trim trim the bush to get better fruit. You got it. It's okay. It's okay. You know, and so she's, she's always been my cheerleader from day one about that. And yeah, so that, that's really who we've become now. Um, I tell people we're, we're very authentic. And if we cannot be an authentic team, if you cannot be an authentic team member, then you don't belong at our clinic. We want to make sure that we're practicing medicine in a, you know, gold standard, but obviously for the right reasons as well. Yeah. You felt as a ethical high performer, you thought, you know what, the buck stops with me. This is a leadership problem, but every leader knows. And you did you did trim the bush. And that's another great thing a leader can do with people. But we started this conversation. I thought it was fascinating because you were talking about thinking you knew what people wanted. So part of this is the leader can only do so much. You could have come up with a new mission and you could have come up with a new culture and said, here's what it is. This is what I want. Here we go. This is what we're going to do. Can you tell me how your employees needs have adjusted? How have they adjusted how you do things at the practice? Have they adjusted? Tell me how that, that other half of it comes in. Well, I'll tell you that I didn't just come up with those answers kind of on my own. <laughs> okay. you know? They I, sound uh, good. You're, you, okay, yeah, you didn't dream up yeah. all this on your own. Okay. No, no, no. It was something that I wanted. You know, it. I feel like that's who I am authentically. Like I thought it would be like this great idea. Yeah. But then also there's the notion of, well, as a business, you know, you can't meet everybody's needs because then the business can't run and so forth. And I get that. And I was really struggling with trying to find a balance between those two, meeting the needs of my staff and my entire team, meeting my own needs, meeting the needs of our clients, meeting the needs of our patients. How do you balance all of that? So about, boy, about two years ago now, after our daughter passed away, we had twins miraculously. Okay. So we have two and a half year old twins. When they were about five months old, I kind of hit a rut again. You know, I just really, it was like, my gosh, it's like, as soon as I step away from the clinic to focus on these two newborns, I feel like my team is is stumbling again. What's going on? I took this course called uh, for called Corporate Women Unleashed. If I, I don't know if you guys are able to say names on podcasts, but, but anyways, I, I, I took this course and I thought at first, this is for corporate women and I'm very much not corporate, right. <laughs> not like, you know, those CEOs. So uh, I don't know if this is for me, but I'll tell you what, that that program has been life-changing for me and has absolutely changed my team. So it's, it, it's along the same concept of needs-based leadership. So through that program, I was able to realize that, yes, it is okay to focus on the needs of your team, even though I couldn't find any management article that agreed with that. <laughs> It's okay to focus on the needs of your team, find out where their needs are, where are they at in their life, what are their needs in that moment, and try to lead them in that way and support them in that way. So for instance, here I was sitting 
thinking years ago, oh yeah, my, all of my doctors will only want to work three days a week. They won't want to work any more than that. They'll only want to see a certain number of patients per day, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. In reality, there were probably some doctors who wanted to work extra shifts because they wanted to buy a house. Or maybe they have a really aggressive plan to pay down their student loans like aggressively and they need that extra money. So here I am limiting them on shifts, but that doesn't meet their need. Can I ask, were they sort of forbidden by the rules of how shifts work at your practice because you want to work life balance and they can't do it? Or was the other, did they ever mention, I wish I could do more shifts or they just took it? Clearly I can't because this is how we do the shifts. Right. Well, I would make that. Yes. Yeah, inadvertently as a leader, you inadvertently send messages without even realizing it. Yes. This is the thing. This is what I've learned over the years. I might be thinking one thing. I don't even say it. And somebody takes it totally differently through my actions. So what happened was I would make the schedule and I would put the schedule out. Yeah. Nobody would say anything. Nobody yes. would say anything to me, but they would grumble with each other, which again, you know, affects culture. And yeah. so part of this needs-based leadership is also implementing constant communication, constant communication. And we're still getting to the point of having consistent one-on-one -on -one meetings as doctors, because our, our doctor team right now is just so busy, but yeah. we do have doctor meetings every two weeks and it's a time for us all to come together and make sure we're checking in with each other. So really we went from me being available 24 hours a day and having an open door policy 24 hours a day, which was totally consuming. I didn't have any boundaries in my life, you know, type thing to a, Hey, we're going to meet every two weeks. You guys can come talk to me. I handed the schedule off to my new managers and um, said, you guys do the schedule. If the doctors have questions, they come to you. We yes. started opening this up to say to, and, and I'm constantly telling my entire team, look, we understand you guys are all at different seasons of your life. You all have different needs in your own lives. We want to make sure that we're meeting your needs effectively so that you can be an effective team member here. So tell us, be honest with us. If you need something different with your schedule, let us know. So that has really opened it up to, you know, some, some of my doctors want to take on more shifts and they know they're welcome to. Some of my doctors don't want to do that. They only want certain shifts. Fine. That's great. Let's meet people where their needs are at. Let's figure out what those needs are. Let's meet them there. And so that, that's part of this process. The other part of the work-life balance has nothing to do with the number of shifts that you work. It has nothing to do with the number of hours that you're working or how much time you get off. And this is something else that I didn't realize before. That work-life balance also, it's very crucial to it that when they are on shift, that they feel purposeful, that they are able to work efficiently and effectively and for our doctors in particular, that by the end of their shift, they can have their records done so that when they leave, they can leave. Yeah. And I didn't realize that was a part of it until I took this corporate women course, ironically, yeah. right? Is that I needed to make sure that I could do everything I could while they were on shift to also make sure that they were leaving that shift feeling accomplished, that they got their work done, that they were able to practice that high standards of medicine, a high level of care for every single patient that walked through that door, because only when we achieve that will they feel accomplished, right? And and successful and, and want to come back again for another shift. <laughs> is it then, so maybe initially you thought, you know what, this is an issue of time. Every week, work-life balance is about how much time you're devoting to the two things. 
-hmm. is what you just said, have you, instead of encouraging people to say, this is how much you need to work and this is how much is acceptable or unacceptable, have you switched to teaching people and maybe you yourself having better boundaries when on is on and when off is off? I mean, are people at your practice real careful about not taking work home on the weekends and real careful about not taking calls all the time? I'm basically asking, is that what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have a group text that we do with the doctors and we'll do case consults with, with each other over text message. And so part of one of the boundaries was I said to the whole team, look, I'm so glad that we have this kind of relationship with each other that we can <laughs> converse all the time. Right. But I really want to protect everybody's time off. So I would like those case consults to come to me first. Okay. <laughs> and if I don't answer you in 30 minutes, then you can do the group chat because I really want to protect everybody else's time off from here. So that was one of the first steps and everyone really appreciated that. The next step was to say, you know, yes, you guys are able to work this many hours if you want. However, when you are on shift, I want to do everything I can to make sure that you get your work done here while you're here. And I'm the first person to start texting them when they've been there an hour and a half past their shift. Like, (laughs) hey, how's it going? What can I do to get you home? And I'm just really open and honest with them. Hey, guys. This is where I'm at. I've noticed that you guys are logging on because everything's cloud-based now, you know, of course. amazing technology. Hey guys, I'm noticing, I'm, I'm hearing from the team that you guys are either coming in and doing records on your day off or that you're logging on from home on your day off to finish records. So what can I do to help you get your records done when you're here in the clinic so that when you get home, you can just be home? You don't even have to think about it. It doesn't even have to be in the back of your mind. So we we implemented two things. One, dictation software was a big thing for us. So we implemented some dictation software in the clinic to help people get their records done faster. And then also one of my vet assistants who has now, she's in vet school. And so she's going to be a veterinarian soon. She implemented a scribe program, an internal scribe program. So we we kind of, um, we get to serve a few purposes. One, the doctors get their records done by the end of their shift, which is amazing and uh-huh. awesome. But we also, our scribes are veterinary students. So they're able to get that clinical experience to grow them professionally too. So, you know, we implemented these two things to really help make sure they could get their records done by the end of their shift. And the feedback that I'm getting from them is, wow, it's amazing. I leave shift, my records are done. I don't have to think about them. I don't know what to do with myself when I get home. I was going to ask about that because some people love, there was probably some people who are like, well, to be honest, boss, I actually like sitting for four hours on Saturday and writing out my medical records. So yeah, they probably didn't. What am I going to do with this time? Because I like doing this. Right. Or maybe they don't. Maybe everybody routinely hates I know. (laughs) Most people, you know, here's the thing. As veterinarians, we're very type A, right? We're high achievers. Most veterinarians, that's like our personality type. And so what happens is, we think that our purpose is only attached to being a veterinarian. Yes. And I really, really want people to understand that 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 isn't the only thing that should be driving our or filling our purpose need in life. Because inevitably what happens is, you know, what if if your purpose need is only filled by you being a veterinarian, what happens when you have a client who's really nasty to you? What happens if somebody really puts you down? you get really, really upset about it because here they are taking away your entire purpose. Yes. Right? And so I think it becomes a very, very slippery slope and a dangerous slope to be on if we only fill our purpose need 
by saying we're just a veterinarian. So I really try to encourage my doctors and my whole team, look, I don't want you to only be defined as being a veterinarian or a technician or an assistant or a receptionist. You need to have another purpose in life too, outside of these walls, <laughs> even though I adore you. <laughs> Does that mean you wind up doing, that sounds a little bit, you have to do a little bit of life coaching with people. If these people come out and mm-hmm. look, they want to be a veterinarian. This is what they love to do. They want to do it all the time. And do you kind of gently coax, if you get young veterinarians in there, coax them into, what else do you like to do? And, oh, I heard you were surfing two weeks ago. That's so cool that you surf. Like, I don't know. What do you, right. how do you, right. how do you foster that? Well, I mean, I think most of it happens through my management team because okay. um, unfortunately when you're, you know, everyone calls me the big boss at the clinic and I'm like, come on guys. <laughs> Everyone's always scared of like, you know, the big boss once you have that title. So they right. like to talk to you about things, but not as, you know, not as much as, you know, when other people are there. So yeah, I do. I try not to pry into their lives too much because I, I know I, I am the big boss. And once you have that title, it can be a little bit yeah. intimidating to tell your boss what you're doing. But we do really foster at the clinic this culture of, yeah, that's really awesome. I want to support you in this other stuff you're doing outside of here. You know, we had a bunch of people that went and did, did like, a, what was the Tough mutter like run, like a 5k oh, yeah. run, you know, and they had a lot of fun with that and like really encouraging them in that. Or there's a couple of people that they like to go get their nails done together. And it's like, yeah, that's awesome. Oh my gosh, look, your nails are so cute. Like really trying to encourage people. So I do feel like a little bit of a life coach at times, which is, <laughs> which also is, I'm, a, I never knew like, that's a passion of mine. I never knew how much I, <laughs> we always talk in veterinary medicine, you go into veterinary medicine because you, you don't like people, you don't like right. dealing with people. But in reality, I love people. I love, I love people. I love dealing with people. And so this has been out of all of this, you know, this new culture that we have, which has just been amazing. I don't think there are many people out there that can say they, they adore every single one of their team members and that they are so proud of them. And it's just so amazing to watch them grow and grow and grow. And, but out of it too, it's been really nice to keep encouraging them. Look, it's easy to get sucked into veterinary medicine. It's easy to get sucked in so much that you lose other aspects of your life, but don't let that happen. I don't want that to happen for you. <laughs> I don't have the expectation that's going to happen. So you need to have a life outside of these walls, you know. I want to circle back to. So I asked you, you know, I said, "Hey, you're the leader." And then it, you you talked about the the needs needs-based leadership, is that specifically what you called it? Mm-hmm. So thinking about the people again, how do you make sure, because you know, it's like cyclical, the leader can't make all this happen, but the leader can't do it, they don't model it. How did you, right. you re-envisioned your practice and you built this team from old and new together to make it happen. What do you do to model and make sure you're doing exactly the thing that you ask these other people to do that you keep your own boundaries? How do you do that as a leader? Yeah. So through this program, I was able to identify what some of my needs were. Yeah. Right. My, my top three needs, my priority. And for me, I really wasn't able to be the mom that I wanted to be because I own a 24 hour clinic. Yeah. (laughs) I'm on call 24 hours a day essentially. And so I just had to set up some boundaries. So now everybody knows I set up a boundary in the beginning when all this happened, I said, um, I'm going to be home to put my kids to bed five nights a week at least five nights a week, because it's very important to me that they go to bed knowing that their mom is there and, and I want them to know how loved they are. They're really important to me. So it's really important for me to put my kids to bed at least five nights a week. It's really important for me to have dinner with them at least five nights a week. 
And so my whole team knows now that that's my priority. And so <laughs> if it's getting late in the day, they're the first ones to be like, Lindsay, look at the clock. You need to get home. You can always come back later after you put your kids to bed and, and finish this up. Or, hey, we haven't gotten that cat into the operating room for you yet. I'm worried that if we get them in there now, you're not going to get home in time to put your kids to bed. So do you want to come back after you put your kids to bed and do the surgery? Because they know I'm a night owl too. Yeah. And so it's really nice because everybody knows that boundary that I have, you know? Yeah, I do. It is really important to me to put my, put my kids to bed. Thank you for recognizing that. Thank you for being okay with that. And thank you for holding me accountable. <laughs> That's one way is, you know, as, as a team, we're here to hold each other accountable for these little things that we want to, these goals that we have. Yeah. So that, that would be one of them. The other thing is um, we implemented, you know, I want to hear what all of your ideas are. I'm open to ideas on on areas where you guys think we could grow or different things you think we could implement and how much I need. And I tell them all the time, I need you guys to give me those ideas because I can't think of all the ideas on my own. <laughs> right. And so when we have these kind of brainstorming sessions and, and people throw these ideas out to me, then when they see their idea implemented and that it's successful, and I let them own it and really grow it further and have success with that. I think that's really awesome as a leader to implement that and help them grow in that. This year, we've been really, it's, it's been a rough year, right? The pandemic has, was really hard. We've been yeah. insanely busy. We've been the only clinic in the area to not turn away patients and not close, which means we're at capacity every day or beyond capacity. And it really, I had just had to tell my team, um, we just have to hold the line, you know, I'm, we, we just, this is our mission. We have to only do what aligns with our mission and with our values. So I'm going to be right by your side here. I'm, I'm going to come in. I'm going to do these things. I still am going to be home for dinner and <laughs> put my kids to bed, <laughs> but I'm going to come in and I'm going to do the work and I'm going to log in from home and help you do some things, but I have boundaries too. And so, you know, you, you really, you show them as a leader, I'm right in the trenches with you. But also I have my own boundaries too, and I'm going to stick to them. You know, I'm going to help you as much as I can. I know you've got it in you to keep doing this. I know you've got it in you to keep going, you know, so I guess that's, that's really maybe how I lead about it. My next step is to actually take a vacation. So (laughs) you got me, you got me there. I haven't had my vacation, uh, but that's okay. I feel like I've seen this evolution before and I just think it's beautiful where managers that love their employees sometimes start out being that they're trying to do everything for their employees and help their employees Mm -hmm. and answer all their employees questions and fill in all the gaps in their team. Right. And then, then they get to this, whatever, there's a crisis point or a stress point or things aren't working and they kind of change to start empowering people. And the whole culture enforces this stuff. The leaders and managers always seem like they do a little more than everybody else. But I don't know, the fact that you have your hands at the fact that you said some of these employees, they give these ideas, they see them implemented. That's what you get all the time. And you're giving that to some of them. So I can hear the boundaries are, or maybe they're, they're always harder for the managers and leaders because you yeah. love the thing so much and your purpose is it's so tied into this great thing that you have your hands in. But so I can always, it's just a constant battle. I don't think any manager and leader ever gets to the point where they're like, oh yeah, I take every vacation I want. Right. There's something that feels good about the sacrifice, but there's a balance point. Maybe you were sacrificing too much and now you're sacrificing somewhere closer to just right. Yeah, I think that's probably it. It's it's always evolving. 
right? I tell my team, we have this analogy that we talk about, about the boat. And I can't control the waves in the ocean. I can't control anything about the frequency that they hit our boat or how high they are or anything like that. All I can do is help fortify our boat so that we can be as strong as we can be and weather whatever storm comes our way. And that's what I tell them is that as a clinic, I'm just here to help, you know, steer this boat through this storm yeah. as all these waves come crashing down constantly. But I'm here as the captain to guide the ship, but also to make sure that we all as a team can keep fortifying the boat so that we can weather bigger and bigger storms. And then also you individually have to fortify your own boat. I can't do it for you, but I can certainly help support you and hold you accountable and encourage you along the way. Because if we can become more resilient as a profession, we can't control what people are going to say. There's yeah. always, always going to be those people out there that are the squeaky wheels that misinterpret right. something. They don't understand something the right way. They mistake a tone or they interpret it. You know, you just, you can't control that. Those are those waves you can't control. They were having a bad day. There was a bad right. outcome. They didn't like that. Nobody could have done right. anything about. Yeah. Right. And we don't know what's going on in their personal life. Maybe their whole world is falling apart and this is just yeah. the final straw for them. So I, I try to encourage my team and lead from the mindset of you cannot tell those people how to think. You cannot tell them how to behave. I mean, we can set boundaries about we won't tolerate certain behaviors from clients and that's right. fine. We won't tolerate certain behaviors from team members and that's fine. We can set those boundaries. But if you spend all of your energy trying to change their mind and get them to act a different way, you're going to be wasting your energy. Once you spend your energy just making yourself more resilient and fortifying your own boat. So that's where we live at EVH is fortifying our boats and how do we go about that? And each person's different, right? Each person is different about how they need to achieve that. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. If you enjoyed it, and please say you did, it would be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the Leaders Course, tell your friends and peers about the community. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.